Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to do the main part of our preaching, but I need you to turn also to Matthew in chapter 24. Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, also in Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> now I believe what we'll do is uh, stand together to begin with, and if you need to remain seated for physical reasons, that's obviously fine. But I think we'll start in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 uh, with our reading, and um, I don't have time to go into the background of what leads up to verse number 19, but it has to do with uh, the fact that w what it cost for us to be redeemed uh, for the remission of our sins. And uh, then in verse number 19, let's start reading there. We're going to read down through verse 25. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now I want to read that again where he said, Let us, uh, since all of what he has been saying about what it took for the remission of our sin, and then uh, who we are as those that, whose sins are remitted, verse number 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised in the parentheses. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Now I'm going to call emphasis to the fact that what uh, the apostle is admonishing us uh, the people that would have received this letter and read it and living in the Word of God, what he is admonishing us, is based upon the fact there is a day that is approaching. All right? It's right there. So the basis of what he is teaching or what is the exhortation that he is giving, the encouragement that he is giving, the admonishment that he is giving, the basis of it is the fact that there is a certain day that is approaching. And so we want to talk about that, uh, actually preach about it tonight. Father, we are again grateful for your blessings. Thank you, Lord, for the time to assemble together. Thank you for these evenings that we've had together this week and all day uh, in all the services Sunday. What a blessing it has been to be again in fellowship with Riverside Baptist Church and to renew acquaintance and to fellowship. And, and I have seen what we're going to talk about here tonight. I've seen taken, taking place among the saints here this week. And so I pray that you would help that this service would uh, serve the purpose of further encouragement and to borrow from Paul's words, that it would serve to help us hold fast the profession of faith without wavering, in other words, to be faithful because you are faithful and to be found faithful when your son Jesus comes again or when you call us home. To have been found faithful when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. So I pray that you would help us now and give me clarity of thought and mind. And I pray that you would arrest uh, the attention of all who are assembled here and all who might be listening by live stream, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, when you, and, when you and I, 2021, New Testament saints, when you and I talk about a day that's approaching, I'm almost sure I know what comes into your mind and what would first come into my mind. We cannot, however, assume that that's exactly how the saints of that time were thinking 
about the coming of Jesus. Because that's what you and I would think about. That day that is approaching, that next day on God's calendar that is approaching, is the coming of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and he is coming. Praise the Lord. I still teach, preach. It ought to be taught and preached. The imminent return of Jesus Christ. Nobody knows when, but he is coming. And it could come at any time. We're not waiting on any signs or any fulfillments. I remember the years when prophecy preaching was such a big deal, and the more that uh, men tried to zero in on being prophecy preachers, the more fantastic signs they had to find that were being fulfilled every day to sell their books and their sermons and all of that kind of thing. Well, I'll just tell you right now, uh, we, we, we need to quit thinking about the signs of his coming and look for his coming. There's nothing that must take place before Jesus except in the mind and the economy of God and his timing and his will. But there is no prophecy waiting to be fulfilled before he comes to take us out of here. Not one. So looking for the signs, you say? Not really. I'm not looking for the signs, but the Savior. We're not looking for the signs, but we're looking for the Savior. You're making me think I need to stop and preach on that a while. Let me run that by one more time. We're not looking for the signs, but for the Savior. See, if you'd say amen, we could have already moved on from this and been on down the road. All right. Now I want you to look back at at the uh, day that was approaching that I am convinced in my own heart that they were expecting, that they were looking for. And that would be found in Matthew 24. If you'd go there real quickly. Matthew chapter 24, and um, of course Jesus is here getting very close. I mean, Matthew 24 and 25 is the Olivet Discourse, and it's Jesus' own teaching on prophecy. And, um, and then, of course, you go into chapter 26 and 27, and uh, you read about the passion of Christ and uh, what led up to his death and his crucifixion. But look in verse number 1. Of chapter 24, uh, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, that's always amused me a little bit. I wonder what the disciples thought they might show the one who is greater than the temple. But nonetheless, uh, they're going to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they are going to show Jesus the buildings of the temple, no doubt an awesome sight, no doubt an awesome sight. And Jesus said, yes, see these stones? The day's coming when there will not be so much as one stone left standing upon another. Well, that can only mean ruin and destruction, overthrow. And verse 3 it says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And so, so then Jesus gives what we know as the Olivet Discourse, and he gives his teaching on prophetic events, what lies ahead in the future. Now, what is it that provoked the disciples? And what is it that got their attention that caused them to come and say, tell us, what's this? When shall these things be? Well, what things do you think he's talking about? Uh, what, do you th- what things do you think they are asking him about? Well, they are asking about the things of which they just heard. And what did they just hear? That the day is going to come when this temple building that they are so impressed with is going to be in such a state that there will not be one stone left upon another. That got their attention. I guarantee it got their attention big time. And they come to him and they say, tell us, When shall these things be? And then they're thinking beyond these things to the end of the, uh, what what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? What about end time events? 
What about what you just said? This building is not going to remain standing. Okay, now you can lose your place there. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, because when Jesus says to them, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, what day do you think that they had in mind that was approaching? Okay, because from the time that Jesus made that prophecy to the disciples to the time that the book of Hebrews would have been written, the temple was still standing. It was still there. So while you and I are anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ again, and we're anticipating the rapture, and that all that begins to unfold upon His coming again to receive us unto Himself, all right, when we're anticipating and looking for that, I guarantee you they were still anticipating, but you said that the temple was going to be brought down. Now, we can talk about the destruction of the temple, you and I can, about this day and time. I mean, we're not Hebrews. We're not Jews living in that particular time. And we can try to understand from the Word of God how valuable the temple was, but I don't suppose that unless we're actually uh, Jewish and have been uh, taught and brought up like they were, that we would have a full appreciation of the temple like they would have appreciation of the temple. And Jesus said it's going to come down. And when they said, uh, Master, when shall these things be? And then the apostle is writing some 30 plus years later, before 70 AD, that's for sure, because the temple is still standing. And so uh, be, uh, he is talking about what I am exhorting you and teaching you to do ought to be practiced more as you see the day approaching. So what they were anticipating the day was approaching is when that would happen. Again, you, uh, you and I can think about it. We can understand it and appreciate it to a degree, but I don't think to the degree that they could that to be a Jew in that time and to know that this building is coming down, not one standing upon another, that is devastating news. That is overwhelming news to the Jewish people. This building is going to be destroyed, not one stone left standing upon another. See? And uh, so they've already been through this in their history before. I refer you to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple uh, under the Babylonians. So this is in their history, and they knew their history well enough to know that that was an awful uh, devastating time when really it was the judgment of God. If it hadn't been for the judgment of God, Babylon couldn't have touched Jerusalem without the permission of God. And so now they're hearing Jesus say that this building is not going to be standing one stone left upon another. That had to be overwhelming news to them that this is going to happen to our beloved city. This is going to happen to the temple. When is this going to happen? So by the time we're over in the book of Hebrews in chapter number 10, it hasn't happened yet. But do you think they would still be anticipating that day coming? What, what did they ever hear from Jesus that made them think, well, he said it, but he didn't mean it? Well, you know they do. By, by now, they knew. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about by where they were in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples with Jesus, that what Jesus spoke was going to come to pass. And it has not yet come to pass. And now the time marches on and the saints are being challenged by the beloved, uh, in my opinion, the beloved Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that uh, you, I'm giving you instruction. These verbs that I'm giving you here are to be exercised and exercised even more as you see that day approaching. In 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, came in, and that prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled because the destruction of the temple was great, and the historians would write, that it, the destruction was so thorough and massive that there was not so much as one stone left standing upon another. Wow, isn't that surprising? Well, no, it's not surprising. It would be surprising if it didn't happen. See, because that's what Jesus said. Now, you and I have our own day approaching, don't we? So I'm not going to spend a lot of time to preach about the fact that Jesus is coming again. If, you, if you're one that turns fast in your Bible... I mean, you might just turn over to the book of uh, uh, 2 Timothy with me right quick 
And uh, just, you know, we'll just take a real fast look here at 2 Timothy chapter 3 where he says, This know also that in the last days perilous or dangerous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Oh, help me, Lord. I want to stop and camp on all of these. Are we reading about what was prophesied 1900 plus years ago? Or are we reading today's news? See, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of good godliness, but denying the power thereof. Now, excuse me just a second. We know that as the Apostle Paul wrote Timothy and wrote like the Thessalonians and the Corinthians, we know that the Apostle Paul was preparing us, anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to submit to you tonight that in the day that they were looking for this incredible manifestation of the judgment of God upon Jerusalem, when Titus the Roman general was permitted by God to come into Jerusalem and destroy the temple and overthrow the city, while they were anticipating and looking for that, I'm going to take the instruction that was given them that they should be doing as that day was approaching, and I think with justification, apply it to what New Testament saints now should be doing as we anticipate the day of Jesus coming. Okay, so what should they be doing? Uh, this monumental time that was about to come where Titus would come and the temple would, and the city would be destroyed and the Jews would be slaughtered and then scattered again. What were they supposed to be doing while waiting for this day? Whatever it is, I'm convinced it lives in the Bible because that's what we're supposed to be doing as we anticipate the day that is coming, Jesus coming again. What should we be doing? Running to more prophecy conferences? Hearing more of the spectacular signs of the times? Did you know the latest thing that's happened in Israel and the next this and the next that and so-and-so is discovered and unearthed this and, and all of this is supposed to say, oh my goodness, Jesus is coming again. He is. Well, we ought to know that if we never heard of another discovery I mean, come on, that's basic elementary stuff to the child of God that we're supposed to live expecting the coming of Jesus Christ. I, I never got to it in Jude two nights ago where he said, uh, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And if some have compassion, making a difference, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the uh, garments spotted by the flesh. When he said, uh, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, if we took time, you could develop the argument, I think, without, with, without fear of reprisal. You could develop the argument that he is telling us there. You anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes again and takes us out of here, that is an act of mercy for us. Because we will be removed by the rapture from a lot of unpleasantries on this earth. And he has not appointed his children to wrath. He has not. And so, I'm just saying, what should we be doing that time, during that time? Learning more about prophecy? Hearing more signs of the times? No, it's really very basic. I mentioned there are three verbs here in verse 24 and 25. Look at them. And this is, this is our sermon. It's so simple. And let us, Paul was including himself, and let us, not just Hebrews in general, but believers, these words really wouldn't have much to say to an unbeliever. Is everybody with me here? These, really, these words really wouldn't have a whole lot to say to an unbeliever. He's encouraging the believers to hold fast the profession of their faith. And to do that, here's what we are to do as we see the day approaching. And let us consider one another. Now let's stop right there for just a moment and talk about that. What does it mean, let us consider one another? Now, 
The word consider, it just simply means this. There's no new revelation here, no surprises. To consider means to see, to perceive, to understand, to take note of. All right, don't you think that a lot of people would uh, be more long-suffering, patient with others that struggle if they considered what, where they came from, what they might be going through? Uh, what their journey has been, what their experience is. And uh, there are many times, I mean, my wife and I, we talk about this a lot because I, I used to have, in my younger year, I used to have, I was quite sure, this incredible ability to discern and know what people were thinking. And be quick to pass, there's nothing to be proud of, and be quick to pass judgment on them because even though I didn't know them, I already knew about them. I could just tell. How could you tell? I don't know. I'm just wise, I guess. And then I get to know them. And I would be in a position to consider circumstances I didn't know, backgrounds I wasn't aware of, things I had no clue that they were experiencing, had experienced, or were about to experience in their life. And I would say to my wife, you know, I think I was wrong about them. And you know what her standard answer always was? No kidding. Well, she knew it already. She knew I was jumping way ahead of the game. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, that's what I'm talking about. A, a, a person, she doesn't play games, she doesn't mess around. And I'd say, you know, oh, boy, did I miss it on that one. And I look back on that, and, I, and I'm not saying I got past that totally perfect. I'm, that might be in all of us just a little bit. But I'm just saying, I, I, I understood that there are a lot of things that I'm not able, and it's not even my place to pass judgment on, on what is going on or what somebody's attitude is or where they are in their spiritual life. I don't know. But I do know one thing. I should consider them. I should give them proper thought, proper consideration, try to understand, take note of certain situations where I might be able to help them. Just common, it means what you think. Just common consideration. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not. I'm sure you did and knew it before. But where he says, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be, what's the first thing he says? Lovers of their own selves. In other words, not so much concerned about others, primarily concerned about self. Yes or no? Come on, friend. That's, that's exactly what he's talking about. And so we look at that uh, prophecy that the Apostle Paul made, and he said, for in the, these days when these perilous, these dangerous times come, in the end time and before Jesus comes again, men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now, that's always been a, a problem since the Garden of Eden. There's no doubt about it. But I think there must be seasons of time or in the course of time, there are times when it is a, a, a greater evidence that people are self-consumed. And uh, nobody could have their thumb on the pulse beat of American culture and not know that we live in a culture where people are self-consumed. And the best-selling books and bookstores and everything for the past years have been self-help type books and the focus upon the self. I can remember the time when, uh, when the teaching of humanism was being exposed and everything was about humanism. Well, you know what humanism was about? Humanism meant that uh, the answers to life are found within man. They're found within human, hu human beings. We're, we're supposed to understand and uh, come up with the answers to the issues of life. Humanism, it all begins and ends with man. And so... That is the doctrine that uh, is taught by atheism. That is the doctrine that is taught by the agnostic. That is the doctrine that is taught by the humanist. Humanism, that the answers of, we had our oldest daughter, the only one that graduated from, uh, graduated from public high school. And I went to her high school. My wife and I did the commencement. It was at the Gallagher Iba Arena at the Oklahoma State University campus. And there were a lot of people there. It's a pretty good sized high school. And so there were you know, several, for what, three, four, five thousand people there, something like that. And the speaker for the commencement that night was the former president, the immediate former president of Oklahoma State University by the name of Lawrence Boger. Uh, Boger had been also the president of the University of Michigan 
and he was a very astute and renowned individual as an administrator and educator and all of that kind of thing. Mr. Boger got up to give his speech that day to the graduates of Stillwater High School in the year of 1988, 1988. And so when Mr. Boger got up, I sat there and just the total atmosphere of disregard for anything significant happened happening was everywhere. Just the casualness, the people talking, people moving around. And then Boger got up to speak and I thought, what disrespect for a speaker. And then I tried to listen to him for about 10 minutes and I thought, you know, I think I'll go do something else too, you know. <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about and he just, he just got up there with a bunch of gobbledygook. But I do know how he ended the, the, uh, the speech that he made. Here's what he said. Remember, students, the answers are within you. There's no one else, and there's nowhere else to go. Now, that is humanism to the core. That if man is going to deal with the issues of life, then those issues of life are going to be dealt with by man's own understanding. There is nowhere else to go. Why don't you just come out and say, there's no point in having a Bible. There's no point in talking about God, the answers are right here. That's what he said. That was his speech. And I remember going away from that saying, not one of my children will spend another day in the public school. I probably should have known better anyway, but I just, I made up my mind right there. And if your children go to public school, it's between you and God. I'm just telling you how it was with us. <laughs> it was awful. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you, you think we're still hung up on humanism? Uh-uh. No. Well, actually, yes and no, Pastor, because we've moved from that till soci sociologists will tell you. We went from that to the answers are within man to this. The answer is within me. It's within me. Okay, you've heard the term, haven't you? Well, that's my truth. You get what I'm saying? So the answer is within me. But that can't be true. It's, well, it's my truth. Oh, yeah, but listen to this argument. Okay, that's your truth. Now, here's how fouled up things really are. You can have two people that have their truth. They are directly contradictory one to another, and they are both right. Like one plus one is three or nine or whatever you want it to be. Isn't that great? No, it's not great. It leads to all kinds of confusion and the chaos that we're experiencing right now in our country. So the focus is upon me. All right, now hold on just a second. And here has been the problem since the days of the New Testament. And you can read this in uh, Paul's letters to the churches. But here's been the problem. Uh, the problem is that while we are a peculiar people, that's what the Bible calls the saints, while we are the household of faith, while we are a royal priesthood, while we as the saints and part of a New Testament church are the chosen generation, those that are saved of us, come on, he, sa he saved us by his own will. And, and so we are his. Go read the book of 1 Peter and you see what we are. We are a royal generation, a royal priesthood. We are a chosen generation. And we are uh, uh, a peculiar people separated unto God and such as this. So here's been the problem the whole time that while we assemble, assemble together as the redeemed and as the saved and as that royal priesthood, we believe in the priesthood of the believer. We're not waiting on some priest to, to act on our behalf. We go right directly to the high priest, Jesus Christ. Individual priesthood is so important. But here's the problem, is that through the process of time, the spirit and attitude of the world creeps under the church doors and finds its way in the congregation to where now there are people in the church that think the church ought to function like it functions out there instead of like the unique living organism that it is called the body of Christ. The body of Christ is nothing universal and invisible. The body of Christ requires both locality and assembling, visibility. See? And, and so, and the attitude of the world creeps in. So what are saints supposed to do? Consider one another. Consider, give thought to one another. Isn't it great to have young people in church? Isn't it wonderful to see the young people that are up here on Sunday? 
And the, these guys over here, they may not look like much, but I'm just telling you, God's, I'm, I'm just joking. These are wonderful young men of God. Get acquainted with some of them, enjoy that, and the children and all. Isn't that wonderful? And there are times when people get to a certain stage of life, yeah, well, kids aren't what they used to be. Well, that'll help everybody. That attitude will really help somebody, won't it? Yeah, well, when I was a kid, this and that. Well, I got my own stories. But it's not my fault that these kids weren't raised like I was. It's not my fault they didn't know farm life. It's not my fault they don't know. They think you go to the store to get milk. They don't even know. If you told them it come from a cow, say what? How does that work? You know? Uh, and now I'm not saying everybody's there on that. I'm just saying, but uh, it's not their fault. And so what are we supposed to do? Well, within the church context, we're to consider one another. And, uh, I mean, I, I can remember uh, being a pastor 28 years of age, and I can now a pa- uh, then I can remember a pastor uh, being in my 60s, and now I'm trying to preach in church after church, and I'm 76 years old, and I've changed. My thinking changes. I see things differently than I used to. I'm not talking about doctrine. I said I'm not talking about the fundamentals of the faith. I'm not talking about what constitutes godliness and holiness, but my attitude towards people has changed and my desire uh, to help and to try to encourage and bring along and nurture and all of it, it's changed a lot. Why? Well, because I've gone along, the Word of God's kind of affected me, and I really and truly want to be more considerate of people than I used to be considerate of people. Rather than bringing the hammer down on them, they ought to be doing this and they should be doing that. Try to understand what's going on and then help them get where they're supposed to be. That's not just the job of the preacher. He said, brethren, consider one another. Consider one another. I'd like to say to the men of my generation in this church, you don't have to have an official role to be a great encouragement to these boys. Nor young couples in the church. You don't have to have an official role. You don't have to have an office. You don't have to do anything. All you've got to do is just go to church thinking about somebody besides yourself. And determine when I go to church, I'm not just going to talk about some of the trivial things that are talked about before and after church. I'm going to try to find somebody to say words of encouragement to. When I departed from Southwest Baptist Church, you know, they had this special day and stuff. And so they put up a lot of things that they heard me say over and over and over. And of course, like all preachers, every time I said it, it was like, I bet you've never heard this before, you know. And so I'm saying these things over and over. And one of them I said at the end of almost every service, I didn't just do it by habit, is find somebody to be an encouragement to. Say a good word to somebody before you walk out and get in your car and leave. Take time to say a word of encouragement to someone. And just be a blessing and be an encouragement to someone. You know what that is? Considering somebody besides me. I said the spirit of this age is this. The spirit of the age is that the focus is upon the self, the me. And if we are self-centered, I'm going to submit to you this, my friend, that there is nothing more unlike Jesus than self-centeredness. Oh, that's not true. There's all kinds of wickedness and evil. Well, you find any, I didn't say there's not anything else but self-centeredness, but there is nothing more opposite of who Jesus is, who what Je- uh, of what Jesus manifests, nothing is more opposite than the focus upon the self. See, we've been in fellowship and conversation this week, and with some of the younger guys today uh, came up in conversation about my friend Dave Hardy, and I'm sure he's probably preached here before, and most of the church here would remember Brother Dave Hardy. And I remember in my younger days as a pastor, he was at uh, Eastland. He went there a year before I went to Stillwater. And uh, basically all I'd heard about Dave Hardy is the tornado that they had on December the 13th or something like that in a certain year. And their whole church got blown away and he was in there when the tornado hit and under his desk and came out and the church was gone and a bus was sitting on the pews. A church bus was actually sitting on the pews. Well, I'd heard all that story, but I didn't know him. Got acquainted with him, and I don't know, the Lord just brought together a fast friendship. I call him my best friend in the ministry to this day. She's my best friend, but he's my best friend in the ministry today. And uh, I'll never forget Dave Hardy saying to me uh, back years ago, he'd say, Sam, 
I'm coming through Stillwater. I'm going to pick you up on uh, Tuesday morning. And we're going over to Enid or we're going to Alva. We're going somewhere in western Oklahoma. I'm going to come from Tulsa. I'm going to pick you up in Stillwater. And we're going to fellowship meeting. And I said, I ain't going. I said, ain't in those days. I'm way more sophisticated than that now. But anyway, I said, I ain't going. He said, yeah, you're going. I said, no, I'm not going. And uh, why aren't you going? Well, I'm, I remember one particular time I said, well, because they got this guy from, and I told the state he was from, and I said, he's coming. That guy's liberal. Well, he wasn't a theological liberal, but he was philosophically a lot more broad-minded than I was. And I didn't really care to go hear him preach. I said, no, I'm not going. I don't want to go hear him preach. And man, he jumped into my case and called me a crybaby and all that kind of stuff. And he said, Davison, do you know why you don't get anything out of fellowship meetings? I said, no. He said, because you go to get. You're just thinking about yourself. And I thought, well, who, who else should I be thinking about? <laughs> I had a ways to go for sure, yeah. And, and he said, if you'd ever go and just forget about that and just go to try to be a blessing, it's amazing what these meetings could do for you. If you just go trying to find somebody to encourage, trying to find somebody to be a blessing, just consider somebody else besides yourself. And uh, so, you know, most every time we got into it like that, he'd win the argument, I'd go with him. Well, this one time I went and that liberal guy was preaching, and the message that, that was a defining moment in my life as a preacher, Brother Bill, came from that stinking liberal guy, you know. I mean, it's just, it just upset me something fierce. But anyway, but he, he preached exact, exactly. I won't go into details, save time, but he preached exactly what I needed to hear. And then I took Dave Hardy to heart. And now I have guys that come up to me like I was in South Carolina. I, I told you about this. And I was in South Carolina preaching this summer in, uh, in Anderson, South Carolina. A guy comes up to me and he says, uh, Brother Sam, he said, I came to the fellowship meeting Southwest hosted in 1993. And he said, uh, I came there by myself. I was, in a, I was not in a good place, and I was very distraught and very discouraged. I came to that meeting, and he said, uh, you bought my lunch. One of the members of the church gave me $100, didn't even know me from nothing, just came up to me and gave me $100. And he said that you cared enough to pay for my lunch and to have uh, to, a meal with me, and you cared enough to, uh, your people cared enough to just walk up to a total stranger, give me $100. He said it changed everything for me. It changed everything. I mean, it just changed everything. Uh, you, you know how little effort it takes just to consider somebody else and thank them? If for nothing else, faithfulness. Or thank them. You may know somebody that did something. It could have happened on the platform, not happened on the platform. If you consider one another, you can be a huge blessing. It's not my gift. Well, change. Well, I'm very inward. Well, get over it. I'm serious. Well, that's just the way I am. Well, stop being that way. One of the last things I wanted to do when I got ministry is walk up and introduce myself and say, hello, my name is Sam Davison. I didn't like to say my name. I just, I, why don't you like to say your own name? I have no idea. I just felt weird. Anybody else ever have that? Go up and, you know, so you know what I did? I knew I had to do it anyway. It didn't matter if I wanted to be that way or not. That didn't even matter. I wanted, it doesn't matter that I didn't want to be that way. It's what I should do. And if I'm not going to be that way, who am I thinking about? Me. Well, he said, consider somebody else. Well, I don't know who I am that would be an encouragement to anybody. You don't have to be in anybody to be an encouragement to anybody. All you got to do is just let somebody know that you know they're there. And there are people who can walk out and say, you know, I've had very little to do with them. And they said the most encouraging word to me. Well, I wouldn't know what to say. Well, think what to say. Plan on something to say. I'm serious. It, it's there. Well, is this as deep as we're going? That's where he took us right here. As we're looking for the day approaching, consider one another. Just common, simple thoughtfulness and consideration. And I would challenge you to face the same question 
I ask myself before I came tonight or this afternoon in the hotel room, I ask myself the question that I had written on the paper to ask everybody else. Who lately have you been interested in besides yourself? And I have to answer that question myself. Because you know what I can do? As well as anybody else, get self-centered. I said, be oblivious to those about me and be self-centered. Nothing is more unlike Jesus. I'm not leaving that one until I get an amen. Nothing is more unlike Jesus than self-centeredness. Consider one another. Look what else he said. Look on. We've got to move it here. Look down at verse number uh, 24. Consider, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. To provoke unto love <laughs> and good works. When I say, why don't you provoke somebody today? You first think positive or like, yeah, well, no, we got plenty of people provoking me, but not to good. But he's talking about provoke unto love and to good for the sake of good. So I looked up the word. You can do the same thing. The word provoke, spur on, stimulate, incite, stir up, even irritate. <laughs> oh, man. Somebody said, your preaching irritates me. Well, good. You probably need it. I don't know. I'm just saying. It's what he said, that as we see the day approaching, make it your business to provoke somebody, not to try to frustrate them, but to provoke them unto what? Unto love. And unto showing the love of God, unto showing the love of Jesus that is in us. By showing them love, I'm just saying, provoke them, encourage them, incite them, spur them on, and stir them up, even irritate them unto love and good works. Now listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Everything about the spirit of this age... And everything about the world itself is contrary to genuine, authentic Christianity being lived out. And if we are going to live out Christianity and show Jesus and be genuine, authentic followers of Jesus Christ, there is going to be opposition. It is an uphill effort. And we are going to need to provoke one another unto love and good works. If you see somebody slipping, don't go home and say to the wife, you notice they haven't been here, some of the services. You notice they, as soon as service is over there, right out the door. Yep, yep, didn't think they'd last. Well, that'll help them. Why don't you encourage them? Why don't you get a hold of them? Some of you, I can tell there's some brotherly love in this place and love for one another. You see somebody struggling? And you see that they might not be participating in a song service. It could be some physical condition. It could be something that has overwhelmed them right before church. It could be all kinds of things. But if you see something sustained, and you see somebody struggling, and it seems like they're fighting an uphill battle to try to maintain their joy and their efficiency or their, or, or their effectiveness in coming to church and living the Christian life and doing the work of the Lord. Don't go home and talk about them. Say something to them. And provoke them that there is still work to do. Provoke them unto love and to good works. I've tried to do that as a pastor. I've tried to do it with other pastors. I've tried to do it with church members. Rather than getting a pulpit, backslide, some of you are backsliding. Well, some of them, the ones that are backsliding like that, they need that kind of preaching. But somebody may be just climbing a hill, really struggling, facing something that I need to try to understand. And when I do, or whether I do or not, try to provoke them to love and to good works. Come on. What we're trying to do is finish this race. What we're trying to do is hold fast this profession without wavering. This is no place to stop. Provoke them unto love and good works. I'm going to say it again. Everything about the spirit of age is contrary to this church being real. Everything about the spirit of this age is contrary to you living an authentic Christian life outside the doors of this church. 
How are we going to do that? The world is not growing more favorable to the Christian life. I said the world is not growing more favorable to the things of God. It's growing more unfavorable. What ought we to do while that's happening? Provoke. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, now look, he could take us deep sea diving here. Somebody says, this is real shallow, simple stuff. Well, he could take you deep. The book of Hebrews does. But as we anticipate his coming, that day that is approaching, what does he say? The most basic, simple stuff. I remember a number of years, our son is 40. So this was about 35 years ago. And uh, Samuel was our last child. He came along a little later. Uh, We had Cindy and four years later, Susie, and then seven years later, Samuel. Between that, a miscarriage and uh, things, you know, and so didn't, I didn't think I was going to get a boy, and then God gave us a boy, and, and uh, so, oh man, those Samuel and I, we were really, really, uh, really close, and so, you know, I'd come home, hey, Dad, he'd be waiting there, sometimes hiding, hey, Dad, you want to wrestle? Boy, it was on, you know, and so I wouldn't even get a chance to change clothes, and we're in going at it, oh man, I loved it. Well, I remember in taking him in the car and down the road, he would, you know how little kids, they look at hills and wonder, can you climb that? Can you climb that tree or that hill? And I remember driving down through the Arbuckle Mountains down I-35. Hey, Dad, you think we could climb that hill? Oh, yeah, it'd be no problem for us. So he was big into, you know, wanting to climb and everything. Well, over where I was born, western Oklahoma in Major County, there's the, what they call the Glass Mountains. And you can go for a stretch there be, uh, west of Enid about 25 miles and then up uh, towards Woodward, and you can go up that way, and you'll go through the Glass Mountains. You've probably been through those. And it's uh, not mountains like you see in the Rockies and stuff like that, but they're these flat-top hills. It's almost like there was, I don't know, like a flood that rescinded suddenly and washed out a lot of soil but left some peaks up here. I don't know how it happened. I'm sure it took billions of years. (laughs) give or take a few million, but anyway, and, and it's really interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's not beautiful country, sagebrush, and it's pretty dry. Cimarron River runs down through there, but I love going out there. It's where my mom was raised, where I was born right near there, and uh, I, I love that part of the country, and so I decided to take Samuel up Lone Peak, Lone Peak. That's the first of those mountains as you're going to the northwest, and uh, my mom was raised right by there and always talked about it, so um, I, I decided to take Samuel up. He was five years old. Oh, he was so excited. I mean, my mom was with me. My dad had already passed away, and my mom was with me and Sandra. And so we pulled the car up. We climbed through this fence, and Samuel and I do. We go down this little deal and then a little foothill and then start up that hill. Well, we're not, a, we're not a fourth of the way up. And Samuel looks back and says, hey, Dad. I said, what? He said, look how small Grandma and mom are. And I could tell because he's looking this way and then looking that way. And I could tell, uh-oh, this may not be so easy, you know. And so he looks back and he said, look how small the car is. I said, yeah, it's going to get smaller here in a minute. Okay. And he kept looking back and we started going. And we got about halfway, Brother Bill and Samuel said, well, Dad, this is far enough for me. (laughs) I said, oh, no, 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 Samuel, we're going all the way up. He said, well, Dad, I, I uh, and I said, now, look, bud, we're, go- we're going up. He said, okay. So we start going up, and it gets a little steeper as you go up. And, you know, he's going up, and now he's looking back, and now he's afraid. He's saying, Dad, I don't want to go any farther. I'm just, he's five years old. You know, I don't want to go any farther. I said, Samuel, we're going up. Now, don't mess with me, or I'll go get Grandma and Mom and have them show you how to climb it. He said, okay. It didn't bother him, but, you know, trying to humiliate him a little bit and provoke him and agitate him a little. And I said, okay, now we're going up, and we're about three-fourths of the way up, and it's steep, and, you know, you got to be careful, watch your footing and everything. And he said, I'm going down. He's crying and throwing a fit. I got a hold of him. I set him on a clump of, of uh, grass right there. I set him down. I got my nose about that far from his nose, and I made him look me in the eye. And I said, Samuel? If I have to take my belt off and tie you to my body, we are going to the top. We are not going down. Stop your squalling. I'm taking you to the top. You understand? Yes, yes. So we go on, and we fight our way up there, and we get right to this ledge. 
and I put him on my hand, you know, and I give him a push, and he goes up. And I find a tree, get a hold of it, and I climb over this little steep ledge right there and climb up to the top. Well, by the time I got on top, here he is. He's running around the top of that mountain. Yeah, yeah, uh, we did it, you know, and all kinds of stuff. And he come and got a hold of me, and he said, Dad, thanks for making me go all the way. I'll never forget it. Thanks for making me go all the way. There's a lot of people that never finish the race. That are going to wish they'd have gone all the way. You know what they might need? You. They might need you to pull them aside and just provoke them. Provoke them to love. Provoke them to their love. They should be motivated, motivated by their love for God. Their love for Jesus. Provoke them unto love and to good works. Provoke them to do the right thing. Sure, the way gets steep. Sure, it's sometimes hard. No, it's not always pleasant. But I got a feeling when Jesus comes, there's going to be a whole lot of people looking up other people saying, thanks for helping me go all the way. I know I'm going to thank my pastor, Dan Tidwell. I'm going to thank Raymond Tracy, who pastored us through our Bible college experience. I'm going to find people that have been encouragement like Dave Hardy has been in my life to do the right thing and to go on and to extend yourself and step outside of your comfort area and such as that. I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of people to thank. I said, I've got a lot of people to thank. And maybe you ought to be one of those that take it upon yourself. I go to church. I'm faithful. I put in the tithe. I do this and I do that. But there's more to it than that. And you don't have to have an official title to do this. The church doesn't have to vote you into office to, for you to be somebody that considers others and that provokes them to love and to good works. It ought to be just what we do as a child of God. Because we care about the work of God and we care about each other's life. And we care whether you finish the race or not. It want to be something to get to heaven, and there will be all kinds of people praising Jesus, first of all, because without His grace, none of us would make it all the way. But thanks for encouraging me to go all the way. I've had young men that have gone to Heartland Baptist Bible College and come this close to dropping out. They're out pastoring right now. It'll say to me or to somebody else back at the school, I'm not the only one by any means, and say, thanks for encouraging me to finish. We try to tell the students, finish what you start. Don't start a pattern in your life of starting something and not finishing it. Forevermore, if you've always done that in your lifetime, then stop it right now and finish what you start. There'll be a lot of them thankful. There are. That somebody provoked them to love and good works. And the last thing is, uh, if you look down the next verse, we'll read it to make sure I get it exactly right. Look in verse number 25. Not forsaking these, all of this is to be done in the local church context. Somebody say amen so I don't have to preach on it. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another. Well, isn't that very much like provoking? Yeah, it could be. Except this one. And I'm going to make this short, but I want you to get it. Uh, you remember uh, Paul's words to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he talks about the coming of Jesus, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Remember, he ends that section there by, uh, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're going to ascend, and uh, he's going to take us with himself, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You remember those words? You remember what's right after that? Wherefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. Comfort and this word are the exact same Greek word. The exact same word. So while exhort may have to do with provoking and encouraging on, there are other places it does. But in this particular case, it has to do with the matter of comfort. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, it would take a hard heart to not know that there are people experiencing pain. Now, we live in a hypersensitive culture, and some people have pain over everything that doesn't go exactly their way. I'm not talking about that kind of selfishness. I'm talking about the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Right now, I've got on my prayer list uh, five widows. Four of their husbands were pastors, and the other one was in full-time ministry in music, and uh, that have recently died. Out of those five, three of them were directly related to the pandemic, the, the COVID, and uh, the others other issues. But five left widows. And uh, I text, I don't, I don't directly text the widows that are preachers' wives and everything, but I'll text their pastor or, in this case, their son. And this afternoon, I just sent a word to say, I just want you and your mom to know I haven't stopped praying for you. Though Dad's been in heaven now for a few weeks, I want you to know I'm still praying for you and, and just encourage you. Well, he sent me a text back. It was right on time. You know what I mean? I, I love it when that... It was just right on time. It's what he needed today, and Mom needed it too, and just comfort somebody. What would you say? Well, I, I can't say I came up... You wouldn't believe the words of wisdom I had. Basically, all I said is let them know. I'm letting you know, and I want your mom to know. We love you, and we're still praying for you. And I won't stop praying, not for a while. I'll keep praying for you. Yeah. And what did that do? Well, according to his text, it did a lot. Picked him up. Encouraged him. Just a reminder, somebody cares. And... Uh, I've sensed here, I, I feel like I could be preaching to the choir because there's been a good attitude, good spirit, good atmosphere in this place since Sunday morning. I got a feeling it was pretty good the week before I ever got here. So it's not like I think, you are the most selfish bunch of people. But I do know this, that in the course of our walk and in the course of our life, we can get self-absorbed and we can think that we are in this pretty much alone, or that my problems are worse than anybody else's problems, when really the best thing you can do in the time of your struggle is to find somebody to be a blessing to. I don't think it was this week. I think it was last week talking to the pastor, Adam Rivero. I think it was him. And uh, yeah, it was, because he's, he's a young pastor, and a wonderful young servant of God. You know, Brother Adam. But he's just been amazed how many of the saints, the seasoned saints that he has, how many of them he goes to be an encouragement to, but he can't. That's where he put it. I try to, but I can't. Because they're encouraging me. And I go to try to be a blessing to somebody else, wound up, I got the blessing. I've been in I don't know how many hospital rooms where I just said, I just hope I can go and say something that'll be encouragement, pray with them, and I walk out the door, and I got a lot more help than I could have possibly been to them. You know what you call people like that? Christians. Genuine, true, authentic Christians. Think about that. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. That is what is so sick about the present contemporary popular mentality Less services, no Sunday night. He said more, not less. <laughs> we just see the day approaching. More, not less. And since you are assembling together, take time just to consider, to provoke unto love, uh, love and good works, and to exhort or find a way to comfort those that are needing some help. And when the day comes, that Jesus comes, we will be glad we did. No question. Thank you, Father. Thank you for these moments together. I pray that you would help us. Help us to live every day anticipating the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. And may evidence of our expectation be how we conduct ourselves toward one another. Consider it provoking unto love and to good works, exhorting or coming alongside to comfort someone who needs the comfort. It's so basic. It is so simple. 
and it can also be so easy to ignore. I pray that as we are people of the Bible, as this congregation reads the Bible, reads the Word of God, may we be reminded of, oh, oh sure, there are deep, there are deep places to go. There are thoughts that, and, and uh, truths in your Word that make us think deeply. But may we never be so engulfed in trying to think deeper that we ignore these basic, basic issues that we are admonished to keep as we see the day approaching. As we see the day approaching. I said to one of the brethren tonight, well, you sure go to church a lot. He said, I try to be here whenever the doors are open. I pray that would be the attitude of every member of this church, those who are present and those who are listening by their means or are not present. So much the more as we see the day approaching. I pray that you'd work your work in the hearts and lives of your people individually, this church collectively, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?